We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Ah, mmm. The first taste of rare bourbon you finally got your hands on. That's nice. At Caskers.com, we make this experience easy. Caskers is a one-stop spirit curator with an impressive selection of exclusive sought-after rare and household names in the realm of premium spirits and champagne. Discover the top flavors of the year now by going to Caskers.com and using code WELCOME10 for $10 off your first purchase. Get $10 off your first purchase with code WELCOME10 at Caskers.com. In today's episode of the Sixers Beat, Rich and I dive into the listener mailbag. Going over everything from growth in the young players, how to best maximize Joel Embiid in their defensive scheme, why you should have hope for the Sixers as a title contender, and a little bit of a dive into the Sixers' upcoming salary cap situation regarding George Hill, Danny Green, the mid-level, and the apron. If you're not already an Athletic subscriber, head on over to theathletic.com slash Sixersbeat, where you can get a discount on a yearly subscription. Enjoy the podcast. All right, welcome everybody. This is Derek Bonner, joined by Rich Hoffman on the Sixers Beat, part of the Athletics Podcast Network. How you doing, Rich? I'm good, man. Holiday weekend. It is. Podcasting with you. It is. About to, about to hit some mailbag questions. We are. It is What's all... more American than that? <laughs> yeah. Uh, talking about basketball, I did do a little grilling earlier today. Yeah, it's a, it's a good, it would be nice if it would stop raining a little bit. That would be great. I think it's supposed to be a pretty nice day tomorrow, isn't it? It's supposed yeah. to stop tonight. It didn't didn't get grilling get canceled or something online yesterday? Did it? I don't know. I don't know. Yeah. I've, I've been offline more often than not lately, uh, mostly because when I'm online, I get frustrated about something. So I've been trying to be a little more offline here in the week and a half, two weeks since the season ended. Um, all right. So uh, let's just jump into the mailbag. Uh, we took some questions uh, from readers, both through Twitter and through email. So we will jump Pretty much right into that. Nothing has changed. Sixers still lost game seven. Uh, There have been no transactions yet to date. We still have some time before the draft later on in the month. So we will. um, Yeah, let's let's answer some questions. We'll start off with TK76, a longtime friend of the pod. What are the best case and expected contributions from the younger players who steps into major rotation roles next year? Well, I think Maxi is the the clear Obvious, one to me. Yep. Yep. Who can can jump up another level? I'm looking at his numbers right now. Eight points per game, and I mean, gosh, the guy had a 39 point game, so maybe a little bit less than that in general. Uh, 15 minutes a game, eight starts, 61 games. So he he played a lot, and obviously had a. I don't know what his his total playoff numbers are. Had an up and down playoffs, but certainly had some good moments. He he is the one who. A lot of rookie guards just aren't good yep. in general. I think I think we mentioned that when he was struggling in the middle of the year, and I was saying, you know, hold the brakes on this guy. He's, you know, he's making a lot of really dumb mistakes. He's not shooting the ball well. He's doing all of this bad stuff. But I preface that by saying it's okay. He's a rookie. This is not me thinking he's uh, he's doomed for the rest of his career. So I think, you know, for him to acquit himself as well as he did in the playoffs. He could he could be looking at I don't know, what do you think? Six man type type role if everything goes right? Yeah. Yep. Maybe even starts depending on, you know, who gets traded and and whatnot. Why is is there trade rumors? No, I I just 
you know, Just you have to leave the door open. Yeah, yeah sure. Yeah. Uh, if it seems like we will intentionally avoid a lot of trade talk in this podcast, in these mailbag questions, it's because we did. Um, that is going to be an <laughs> all-encompassing topic here. We will have plenty of time to talk about it. A trade is very unlikely to happen before the draft anyway. Hold your horses. Uh, we will get to it. But look, yeah, look, we're avoiding it. We're just, <laughs> we are. Um, let's be honest. We're avoiding it. But guess what? We're going to talk about it at some point. It just there's a lot of time for this off season, and as you said, the trades normally don't happen before the draft anyway. So we got to spread out got the time. content, you got even time. the even the juicy stuff. You don't need to fret over every rumor or every non-rumor, uh, every team you don't hear in a rumor. We'll see. Let it develop. Uh, we will get to it. I promise. Uh, I also I, think from an emotional standpoint, pushing it out a little longer, not, not to say that we can't look at it clearly and and look at the whole situation non-emotionally, but I think be, being able to have a little bit of time adds perspective. And, sure. Yeah, sure. I think that's not, that's not a bad thing. Also, a, a month straight of nonstop trade talk will drive me insane, and that is quite honestly the primary reason. So anyway, <laughs> moving back. Yeah, I think Maxi is the one that you certainly look to to take the biggest leap. Um, whether that is six-man or starter, like you said, might depend on what else happens in the offseason. I think starting, asking him to be a starter right from the jump next season would be a little bit optimistic. I'm not sure you want to go into a title contention team relying on him to make that jump. But I think you might want to give him a six-man type role at the beginning so you can see whether or not he is ready to make that jump. Quite frankly, in that playoff run, he was, like you said, up and down, but showed flashes that I think he is deserving of that. When you're talking about skills, you want to see that shot. Like you look at him, he shot 46% from the field. That's good. He had only a 53% true shooting. That's not so good. It's not the good. reason that's not good is because he has a 24% three-point rate and a 16.3% free throw rate, both of which are way low. Like we're talking sub Tobias Harris levels low and Tobias Harris shoots a million percent on his pull-up too. So it works out a little bit. You want to see that off the dribble jumper for Maxi both from three-point range and also from, you know, pull-up too. You want to see that be more consistent. You want to see that be a bigger part of his game, especially to pull some of those back from the three-point line. And if he does that, it'll help him get to the rim a little bit more. It'll help him draw contact a little bit more because the defense will be spaced out and his defender will be having to guard him from beyond the free-throw line. So I think that will all help a little bit. Do you expect him to make a drastic jump in either of those next year? No, but if you could come out and shoot 35% from three, take a few more threes per game, um, not necessarily per game, per 100. I think that will help him quite a bit. And that will be the first step towards being that starting caliber guard that you need to see. I, I was tougher on him this year because I thought in reading the Twitter comments, and I shouldn't get too mad at Sixers fans who are excited about their rookie guard, but sometimes I thought the the hype exceeded the reality of the impact he was making on the court this season. Now I'm going to go the opposite way and say, I like, look, I think he's got a pretty bright future ahead of him. And yep. like you said, he needs to, you know, he's got some rough edges. He needs to, to work on those. I do think like an off season though, of, I think he does work with Chris Johnson in the off season, an off season of just understanding where he could make easy money up in those areas is, sure. is a big deal because, you know, we talk about how, tough it is for Joel to post up and all of these things and how the league is made for these guards who you can't stay in front of because you're not allowed to touch them. Yep. Maxie has that skill set. He yep. absolutely has it. He, um, and I think he's a, I think he's a better passer than I even expected. Honestly, initially I'm looking at his numbers right now, pretty much a three to one assist to turnover ratio for a guy who played on some units that didn't have a lot of great spacing. And yeah, he doesn't, for, he doesn't turn the ball over much at all. Yeah, and he and like he throws a good alley oop pass too. I think he's a a good passer. Now, is that alley oop pass to Dwight Howard next year or Paul Reed? Because that sort of factors into this question too. Well, we're gonna we're gonna get we're gonna there. get there. Okay, he's uh, <laughs> let's save B-ball Paul for a couple minutes because I I have some some pretty funny stuff on him. Um, Maxi, the whole thing is just can you get the defense to chase over that screen? Can yep. can you make? Either your long two or your three, especially the the three off the uh, off the pick and roll. Can you make them chase over the screen? Because if you can make defenses do that, you're gonna be a pretty damn good player. But he is. If he is ever going to be a high usage guard, he's gonna need that long two too. Uh, and I think yeah. he shot thirty seven point five percent 
uh, on sh- jumpers from 16 feet to the three-point line. That's not a bad starting point. Something to build off of, at least. Uh, so, yeah, I think I think that's going to be a very big key for him this summer. Uh, because I do think he made a little bit of progress there defensively throughout the latter stages of the season. Whereas in the he, middle of the season, he looked pretty lost. I thought he made progress there. He obviously still needs to continue to make progress. Uh, but I think some of those rookie mistakes will go away. And even when he was screwing up defensively in the middle of the season, Doc famously at one point was like, he was our worst defender. There's, there's no question. He got a lot better. Even at the time, I was like, he's just making a lot of stupid rookie yeah. mistakes. They, it yeah. really didn't bother me that much for the long term. And you talk about progress, too. I really like that he cut out the floaters yep. halfway through the season as well, which uh, which shows he can make some adjustments on the fly, even without a full summer to work. So, I, honestly, we'll we'll see what he does next year. But I I think it's fair to have a decent amount of excitement for him. Sure. For Shake, I'm probably not expecting a major jump stat-wise. Uh, I would like a little better decision-making than we saw down the stretch. And that three-point percentage, I'd love to see that get back up in at least the high 30s. 35% for him and what he adds, it's just, it's not good enough. You need him to shoot better from the perimeter. It really is for me that simple. If you do that, you can live with some of the mistakes, um, like fewer mistakes, but you could live with some of the mistakes, but uh, the three-point shooting has to come back. Yeah, and I, I think some of the mistakes that you're talking about, though, it's born out of his inability to create separation off the dribble. Sure. And he also just threw some dumbass passes, though. <laughs> he did, but the, the passing lanes are not as easily open when you're not no, creating I not, separation. Look, but I'm, I'm taking that into account. He still threw some dumbass passes. <laughs> That's fair. <laughs> fair enough. Uh, yeah, and his, you know, his defense is what it is. Yeah, I think with Shake, he's he's less exciting to talk about. I, I think he can certainly have some very positive moments for this team moving forward. You, you know that he has the ability to just go off in a way that uh, he could win you like three or four games a year just by just making every shot he takes. But yeah, I, I agree with you. A smarter floor game. The, the ceiling with him is not as high, obviously, as it is with Maxi. Therefore, it's less exciting to talk about. Yeah, and I, yeah, I think that's generally been the way we felt for a while. That being said, Shake did come out and I think underperform our expectations coming into the season. Uh, and Definitely. I think Maxi showed probably about what you were expecting to show, but I do think he was able to contribute quicker than I expected. Um, so I, yeah, you're certainly more excited about Tyrese. Again, Shake probably is an easier fit conceptually just because he does at least have that shot. Um, it wasn't as consistent as it was in the previous year, but he does have that in his arsenal. So, um, if look, if he comes out and makes shots, he will have a spot in the rotation. In a vacuum, if you just look at the entire 30 NBA teams, if you said Shake Milton is your fourth guard to any NBA team, I, I think a lot of them would say, okay, pretty sure. good. Sure, yep. Yeah. But he's yeah. just not much more than that, and that's why this has been the most boring two minutes of the podcast. So sure, far. sure. I'm practically <laughs> asleep. So you, you said you had some Paul Reed takes. Well, no, I just, I, it wasn't that I have the take. I, I just, he's staying in the Philadelphia area this year. He's made a big deal of it on uh, on Twitter, on Instagram. And he actually, it looked like he showed that he was in Avalon, New Jersey, uh, I believe on. Uh, so if you need any PS5s, get to Avalon, New Jersey. On uh, on Dune Drive. And he, uh, he retweeted something that was pretty funny. Um, I don't, this is a family pod. I'm not sure we can. <laughs> You can, you can edit it out if it, if you don't think it works. Um, if I so somebody tweeted at him, if I don't see B-ball Paul aggressively making out with a fifty year old at the Princeton this weekend, Fourth of July is canceled. <laughs> and, he, and he retweeted it with "Yo, what?" and uh, <laughs> a bunch of crying, laughing emojis. <laughs> it's uh. I don't think look, B-ball Paul is a is a man of the people and he, he that you know how that's uh that's shown he gets crazy tweets thrown at him. He yeah. does. He does. And the problem with B-ball Paul is he has few enough Twitter followers well he will read those tweets. So uh <laughs> be nice to Paul Reed. Be nice to Paul Reed. Don't don't try to like sneak him into any trouble here. Okay, but n- talking about <laughs> talking about not not him hanging out at the Princeton this weekend. Actually hanging out in Philadelphia in Camden and like working on his game. I think B-Ball Paul has a chance to be in the rotation next year. Yeah. He should. I would like to get one other stretchy five 
to put in there just in case he's not ready. But I would certainly have like a co-backup five with Paul Reed. I, I think I've seen enough to give him a shot. Yeah. In part because backup centers are like, you can acquire one throughout the season. If Paul's not ready. Um, I'd like to see what he has at the beginning though, for sure. So the problem with Paul right now, and I think, uh, you know, the, part of the issue with him not playing is that I'm not sure Doc trusts him at all. Oh, Wait, he doesn't. I shouldn't say, for sure. I shouldn't say I'm not sure. He, Doc definitely doesn't confident. trust him. Yeah, and, you know, for a while there, we had the, the Mike Scott saga where Mike Scott was playing every night that Banner Joe wasn't in the lineup and he was playing terribly for no reason. And it was, there was like some legitimate frustration. I remember there was one night I asked Doc, like, have you ever thought about playing Paul? And he was like, no, nah, I don't think he's ready. And so I would say in Doc's defense, Paul, I, I, mean, I love how I'm just calling him Paul, by the way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I just well, I haven't. His Twitter handle. It's Paul. I haven't referred to him as Reed as his last name, which I usually do. For we the do most call part. him B-Ball sometimes, though. Yeah. So, so our friend, Mr. B-Ball Paul, he, his impact in the G League and being the MVP, he was still allowed to make mistakes on that team. Yeah. Like, he was, he was stretched out, and he would make turnovers, and he would take some bad shots. But the reason he was the G League MVP is because Outside of those mistakes, outside of those bad shots, he had a lot of crazy good things he could do on the offensive end. And I love his skill set. I, I honestly thought his skill set with Ben, if Ben was, you know, like 2019-20 Ben, where, you know, him, Paul Reed playing the uh, the Horford role, that seemed like something he could do. Are you saying was, that Paul Reed would look good on Portland next year? Is that what you're getting at? Maybe. I think they should ask for him if... Uh, if they did that, hey, look, we we said we weren't doing. <laughs> but Sorry. anyway, like I think he has a, a skill set that fits in the modern NBA. One of the Sixers' huge problems this year, they weren't versatile enough at all when their backup units, and that is primarily due to the fact that they played one center and he was a traditional guy. Um, so I think B-Ball Paul definitely has a chance. He needs to get a little bit better. He needs to make fewer mistakes and adjust to a backup role, but I think he has the talent to do so. And I will say as much as doc was open that he didn't think Paul was ready. He was also pretty open that they were a very hardworking group of, of young players and Paul was included in that group. So uh, we will see what kind of progress he makes over the the summer. Um, But yeah, I would give him a shot coming out of camp. Uh, Like I said, doesn't work. Acquire another backup center or, or maybe get one in the off season for the minimum that you can put in there alongside him. Um, and if, if Paul does work out, B-ball Paul, Paul Reed does work out, then you can cut the minimum salary center. Like, they're, there's, they're a dime a dozen. Pick up one, but don't be committed to them. Yeah, I completely agree. And also, you know, Doc, after the season, was talking about how he didn't have enough fours on the team. I would say that's partially your fault because you didn't play anybody else at five that uh, could allow you to slide some of those players to the, uh, to the four. I think, look, one of the lessons the Sixers learned this year— they need to try more shit next regular yeah. season. Yeah. You might yeah. not have the number one seed, but if you go a full regular season without trying shit, and I think the Milwaukee Bucks learned this the last couple of years, if you just do one thing generally and do it pretty well, there's a chance it's going to bite you in the ass come playoff time. Yeah. Yep. I think the Sixers and the Bucks of, of years past are a pretty good comparison in that regard, for sure. For sure. As you all know by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using the BetMGM lines to make all our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use the bonus code TABASKETBALL, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,000 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code TABASKETBALL, Make your first deposit of at least $10. Place your first bet on any game. Claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. 21 plus to wager. Visit betmgm.com for terms and conditions. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Nevada, New York, and Ontario. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. In Colorado, D.C., Illinois, Indiana... 
Louisiana, Maryland, Massachusetts, New Jersey, Ohio, Pennsylvania, Tennessee, Virginia, West Virginia, and Wyoming. Call 1-877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona, 1-800-522-4700 in Kansas and Nevada, 1-800-327-5050 Massachusetts, 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa, 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. In partnership with Kansas, Crossing Casino and Hotel. In Ontario, if you have questions or concerns about your gambling or someone else close to you, please contact Connects Ontario at 1-866-531-2600 to speak to an advisor free of charge. Sports betting is void in Georgia, Hawaii, and Utah and other states where prohibited. Promotional offers not available in Nevada and New York. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use the bonus code TA Basketball and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,000 first bet offer on your first wager. All right, so let's move on to we have Mitch. Mitch had a series of mostly salary cap questions, and I will try to run through them pretty quickly. Uh, the first one, do they guarantee George Hill so they have a decent-sized contract for salary matching purposes? George Hill has what I think maybe a million dollars guaranteed of a $10 million deal for next year, and I think it becomes fully guaranteed if he's on the roster sometime in August. I forget exactly when that is. Um, I also forget exactly what his contract for next year is and exactly what his guarantee is. So good on me for prep, but it's somewhere like a million is guaranteed. The rest of it becomes guaranteed if he's on the roster sometime in August. I do think, uh, you probably guarantee that in part because I mean, I think they value what George Hill brings to them off the bench, but also in part because it's a good trade chip. Uh, so yeah, I think, I think that reasoning is probably pretty sound. I think that's not like, I'm not sourcing anything. I'm just. I think that's probably what they do. Second question for Mitch. Can they re-sign Danny Green using cap space due to early bird rights? Well, first of all, uh, if you have early bird rights, you don't need to sign them using cap space. That is pretty much the point of early bird rights. So Danny Green made summer in the $15 million range last year. Early bird rights because Danny Green signed his two-year deal in 2019. So he has two years of service time. It gives him early bird rights. You can start the next contract at up to 175% of his previous deal. Uh, Danny Green is not making 175% of 15 no. million. You don't have to worry about it. So you don't need cap space. You can sign him using early bird rights. But yeah, so the early bird rights, uh, starting at a two-year deal up to a four-year deal, 170 up to 175% of their previous year's salary. So they, they will have the ability to sign Danny Green if they want to re-sign Danny Green. Uh, and again, I think Danny Green is somebody you probably look to bring back in part because he was valuable and, and we saw that in part because at the trade deadline, he could be a trade chip uh, and a selling matching chip. So I think that is all um, all fair. Uh, I would certainly look to bring back Danny Green if the right, uh, if, if it was for the right price. Well, what were you thinking? Two years? Two years, 14, 15, 15, 14, something yeah. like that. I, yeah. I, I think that is a worthwhile. Now, will Danny get more in that on open market? We'll Maybe. see. He'll probably look, uh, but I would certainly be interested in that. And then his final question is, uh, or no, he has two more questions. I believe they still have an $8 million trade exception from the Al Horford trade. Any chance that could be used? Yeah, I think there is a chance that could be used. Uh, that would be, again, another, that might tie a little bit into whether or not they decide to bring back um, George Hill on, on his option year, whether or not they re-sign Danny Green. But that would be another way to acquire another tradable contract. Um, that contract, uh, that trade exception will expire well before the trade deadline for next year. So trading it for a, an expiring contract would be a way to essentially it'll expire it. before the season this year. Yeah. Expire in September, but you will have most of the, or no, wait, sorry. It, uh, wait, August. Yeah, no, September. Yeah. September, September 7th. So you'll have the meat of the off season done yeah. to, to yep. make a decision on. Um, so yeah, I think that is something to look out for as well. Where it starts getting questionable is, um, so, uh, that's where the final part is here. What would the above moves mean in terms of the apron and does it prohibit other moves? Uh, so none of those moves specifically would prohibit, uh, anything else like that would, uh, um, the apron I think is set at somewhere in the $143 million range. The Sixers right now, based on, on what I'm looking at with something like, Eight salaries under contract are at about $112 million. Add in $10 million for Hill, $122. Let's see, $8 million for Green. You're now at $130. Another $10 million acquisition. You would be right at the apron. So what that means is that if you use all of these, you would have to use the taxpayer mid-level instead of the non-taxpayer mid-level because if you use the, 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 the non-taxpayer, then you would be hard-capped at the apron. So that would be... You know, if you would say 
don't bring back George Hill or don't use that um, trade exception to acquire an expiring contract. It would be so you could then go out and use that um, that mid-level without having to worry about the hard cap then. Um, so again, you could either use all three of those and then go out and use the tax, the smaller taxpayer mid-level, or you could use two of those avenues that Mitch was talking about and use the full non-taxpayer mid-level. Those are all, um, all things to consider for sure. Uh, now, now if all that sounds confusing in part because I tried to explain it on the fly and probably did a piss poor job. We will have an article on that in the coming weeks over at the athletic.com slash Sixers. There's your plug. I promise I did not intentionally explain that poorly so we can make that plug, but it's just kind of how it worked out. But yeah, long story short, using all three of those would get them close to the apron, which means they wouldn't have the full taxpayer to use or non-taxpayer mid-level to use. Which might not be the worst thing in the world because you look at the recent history of some of these, those uh, contracts, the, the full non-taxpayer, it's uh, not always great. It's not always great. So, and, and, and when we say taxpayer versus non-taxpayer, I don't have the numbers for the upcoming season, but for the previous season, the taxpayer mid-level, which is again, a smaller version of the mid-level for teams that are over the apron or will be over the apron was $5.7 million. The full non-taxpayer mid-level was nine point, a little over $9.2 million. So you can shop for a higher class of free agents with that non-taxpayer mid-level. It would be something that is good to use. Like Rich pointed out, that can sometimes be a bad contract. But then again, the Sixers previously used their, um, well, they used a room mid-level on Mike Scott, which is a little less than that. Not great, yeah. Not great. It doesn't always work out well either. Um, So yeah, uh, that's that's sort of how that shakes out. And again, if you use that full mid-level, you then cannot go over 143 million. You get a hard cap. Um, so that's why some of these adding up some of these 10 million, 7 million, another 10 million can add up significantly real quick. All right. Uh, I think I've, I have, I've stumbled my way through that enough. This one from double tooth on Twitter. Brett Brown and doc both did a lot of drop back coverage schemes on defense, uh, drop pick and roll schemes on defense with a talent like Joel on our wing defenders. Should the Sixers consider a more aggressive base defense to hunt turnovers at the cost of rim defense? No. Not as a base defense. I agree with that. I think there's a reason both coaches arrived at the mostly the same conclusion. And also most teams that have an elite rim protector, like Rudy Gobert, even like Milwaukee with Lopez, by and large, a drop. Um, it's not necessarily sexy, um, but it denies shots at the rim. It denies a lot of three-pointers. When you have an elite rim protector, you want him protecting the rim. When you start getting more aggressive, it is as a change of pace. And you saw them do that at times, um, especially I feel like the latter stages of game one and game two in the Atlanta series. But you will see them do it at times. You saw them pinch off the wings a lot more than they previously did and give up that above the break three. Um that is sort of where you will force turnovers. They will switch on occasion, but I don't think you're going to go to a full switching or a full pressure defense as your base scheme. Not with Joel on the floor. It's too hard on Embiid. It's... Yeah, you would wear him out for sure. For sure. And when you have a system like a drop system that allows him to, I don't want to say allows him to rest on defense, but certainly forces him to exert less energy while he still makes a tremendous impact around the rim. Yeah, you're not going to change that. I think, honestly, I do think we saw Joe at times this year, probably more than we did with Brett. Like against a really good score against a Beal or somebody like yeah. that, he was mixing up some some pretty aggressive hard hedging, switching, whatever. Um, you don't want to do it as your as your base defense. And that that is something that both Brett and Doc independently said. They they both were like, we, we can't do that. It's... It's not. It's not. Um. It's not going to work in the long run. And playing in the regular season is hard, man. It's a. It's a war of attrition. You don't want to increase the chance of Embiid getting hurt or tired or whatever by playing that style. And I would also say too, just pushing up on the perimeter and playing this wacky, crazy style. I don't even think that works with great defensive players either. Because I, while I agree the Sixers have pretty good wing defensive talent, Matisse pressing up on a guy. Yeah, I'm sure he'll get a bunch of steals and force some turnovers. He's going to get blown by a lot too. It's just, yeah. it's, 
really hard to guard on the perimeter in the NBA and to be that aggressive. So I don't think it's a terrible thought to maybe look for more ways to mix it in, to maybe find specific situations, whether it's, you know, a side pick and roll late in the shot clock or, you know, a post up or whatever, have a little more scheme versatility, have a, be willing to take a few more chances on that end of the floor. That was something that Brett mentioned at times that he wanted to do. Uh, didn't really turn didn't out happen. that way. Yeah. yeah. I, I don't think that's a bad thought, but look, as your, as your base defense with Joel Embiid, drop him back. That's going to look, the Sixers didn't even face a defense that that presented problems. Like you saw with U- Utah, they finally found an, you know, an offense in the Clippers, even without Kawhi that could credibly play five out. And if your perimeter defenders suck, like Utah's perimeter defenders suck, Rudy Gobert doesn't matter anymore. So I do worry a little bit about Joel against the wrong matchup because he's in that same spot where he's going to try and help at the rim and his guy's going to be bopping threes on him. But I think for the most part, the Sixers problems are offensive and you want to stick with that drop back. Yeah. Even, even, even in that series against Atlanta, like they, they defended fine. Um, And I do think, like I said, we can talk, especially in a playoff series, how often you were going to mix that up will change depending on your matchup. I think they could have been a little bit more aggressive there, especially in the latter stages of that series. But as a base defense, no, I don't I don't think you change it. No. When you look at that series, the defense, game one was really bad, and that was partially docked, not putting Simmons on, on Young to start. But I don't know. I, I think when you look at the last four games, that wasn't the problem. There's a lot of problems I have to rattle off before I get the pick and roll defense. Yeah. Especially pick and roll scheme. Yeah. Not, sure. not to say it can't be looked at in the future and it, it might not be a problem in the wrong match, but the future, but, but for now I think it's, yeah. Yeah. All right. This one from Max Galt two. Why is the concept of trading Joel so taboo? He has shown that the offense cannot be run through him. He is the only player of true value that can return the number one option that is needed. Um, well, because well, Joel is awesome. really fucking good. Yeah. Yeah. He's, he's awesome. Um, yeah, that's, that, that's what I would say. Look, if, and also if you, like, like these, I think some people think like, well, what if you trade him for Kevin Durant? Well, those trades don't happen. You don't see star for star trades. Like if they, if they traded him for Kevin Durant, that's one of the trades where I would say, okay. Yeah. Yeah. yeah but like those trades don't like whenever you see a, a superstar traded, it's because that superstar is upset wants to move on and he's probably upset because he's not winning, which means that you can't trade superstar for superstar because the acquiring superstar would just be pissed off that he's not winning. Uh, even the best players in the world need a, a, a second best player with them, like <laughs> trading Joel Embiid for even the best shot creator let's, in the world. Let's trade him for Dame Lillard. Right. Or even trade him for You're Steph Curry. If Steph Curry comes here, you, you, you need better players than Tobias Harris as his second best player. Look, the you give everything you can to get that running mate with Joel because Joel is that good. He is that MVP caliber player. If you trade Joel, you're, it's not going to be for a like for like swap where you're going to fix all of your problems. You're just going to trade one problem for the other. Can you imagine how bad this team's defense would be without Joel? Like it would. Yeah. It, uh, here's the reason why it probably like I, I think the idea of trading Embiid, I. Let me preface this before people are just just lighting me up on Twitter. I would not do it if you were concerned about his injury history, his injury history, and those piling up in the future. Then maybe you can have a conversation about it. I'm not having a conversation about it, but also based on what he does on the floor. But also, the problem is the other team has those same concerns. Yeah, like the the thought that you're going to get fair value for him in a trade is very unlikely. Well, t- to me, you would almost if you ever got to the point of trading Embiid while he was still this awesome player because the rest of your team is such a tire fire and it's not happening. I think the move you would make is for a bunch of draft picks yeah. and to restart and those things. I don't think you're, it's because you're like ever I going said, to look. If you go, if you bring another superstar coming back, he's just going to get frustrated too. Damian Lillard is a number one option. He's a, he's a great player, but if he has a bad defense and he has weak supporting cast players, He's probably not even making it as far as Embiid. Embiid is one of the best. Yeah. Uh, Five, seven players in the world. You really really don't don't have to overthink this question. It's because Joel Embiid is really good. And because I think you can still get, like, 
the players we're talking about with trading Ben Simmons, which we're not talking about this podcast, but the players we would be talking about, there's some good players in there. Like you can, you can, I think what you do is you just unload the dump truck. Uh, if you can get someone um, to be at Embiid's running mate, give that a go. I think you have to try to build a title contender with Joel. I think you have to. We'll see just, how they're the... so tough to get. You, you can't take a, a, a drop back in talent because we haven't had a shot creator in a decade and a half. And we're now desperate for a shot creator. Like you've got to, you've got to build your team. We'll see how the trade market shakes out. But I, I think the way to put this is Joel plus Ben or whatever you can get for Ben is going to be greater than Ben and this team and whatever you could get for Joel. Yeah. It's, it's just, just, just going to be better. It's just impossible to get top five players and you're very unlikely to trade Joel for a top five player. The, the amount of problems you would have by trading him with like their defense right. and just stuff that I know they're a maddening team. The stuff that you probably just take for granted, like, you know, protecting the rim, rebounding, even the attention he takes on offense. Sure. Creating open there, threes. Yep. There would be, there would be so many problems this team would have, even yeah. if you got a really good player back. <laughs> it is, it is impossible to get top five players and you don't trade one when you get them. That's the answer. That's the answer. Uh, all right. This one from Lehman Law. Being a suffering fan for so many years, how can we honestly expect to ever... That This flows pretty nicely in the previous question. Being a suffering fan for so many years, how can we honestly expect to ever win a title unless Ben drastically improves without engaging the process part two? Even with a blockbuster trade, can we honestly believe that the Sixers can beat a healthy Nets, Warriors, Clippers, or Nuggets? I, I mean, I, I guess my point on that would be... Yeah, I mean it's gonna it's like winning a championship's hard. There there are good teams around the NBA. But when you have Joel Embiid, you go for it. Like you, you the Sixers are a team that presents a lot of problems too, um to those teams. And yeah, like Ben is gonna have to get better, or you're going to have to trade Ben for somebody really good. And and that's how it works. But I I make this point, I feel like, on every pod, but I think what this year has taught me, and even the past couple of years have taught me is that the NBA is like, it's not even a year-to-year league. It's a week-to-week league. And things change really quickly. And when you have a good player like Joel Embiid, and you have like a, a decent stable of young players, like, I, I don't even want to say, um, I, I guess we didn't even talk about Isaiah Joe in terms of no, like, maybe maybe he'd get a rotation spot. But like, I, I don't think the Sixers have a bunch of star players in their uh, organization, but they have like some okay depth and some okay young players that might be able to be packaged for something down the line. Like I don't think this is an absolutely hopeless situation in the way I thought last year. Um, is it going to be hard? Yes. But like, yeah, I don't, um, I don't think that's the way I would, uh, I would look at it. I think the Sixers are, yeah, they're, they're probably not the, the top title contenders. They're going to need some things to go right, but I, I'm not at the point where, uh, where I'm thinking process 2.0. No, way. and like I, I guess the, the the reason I would have for optimism, and look, there have been some process think pieces, or at least process pieces that have come out here in the last couple of days, and it really does bring you back to just how much instability this team and management have had here over the last five years, from you know moving on from Hinky, hiring Colangelo. Oops, Colangelo has burner accounts where he disparages his players and releases medical information. You know, hiring Elton Brand to oversee the collective. The brief period where Brett Brown was calling the shots. And this is all happening, and then eventually hiring Daryl Morey and Doc Rivers. And this is all happening over a four-year stretch, basically. And you look at everything that's gone on, there just hasn't been a, a clear direction, a clear focus for the team during that time frame. Well, you finally have one of the most highly acclaimed executives in the league yep. and, and, and one of the most creative executives in the league. And look, has he won a title? No, he's built some teams that I think are title capable teams, but they never won a title. That is fair. But you have somebody who's going to be here for a couple of years now. You're going to have some stability. You're going to have some stability in the coaching staff, even though I, I'm not sure people want to hear that right now, but Doc will be back <laughs> next year. <laughs> And you have some creativity in that front office. Let's see what they can do to build around Joel Embiid. That is my reason for optimism, because you have Joel Embiid. You have a proven executive who's one of the most creative executives in the league who will move stuff around to try to get you what you need. 
and you have some young pieces and some trade chips to work with. And I know our previous podcast was probably down and it was because you thought you had stuff that now you don't, you're not confident you do. You don't know if you have that, that second star. You don't know if you have that primary option on the perimeter. You quite frankly, don't know if the coaching staff has the solutions that you thought they did, but you still have Joel, you still have a creative executive and you have some stability. Let's see what happens. That, that is my reason for optimism. Daryl Morey is, he's been really good at his job over his career. And that's important. Like moving forward, I think frankly for, uh, I didn't love that he, that he wasn't able to get a few extra pieces at the trade deadline, but what he did on the fly in last, when was it? November? Was that last off season? Yep. I mean, I'm, I'm still just all over the place where, I mean, it's 4th of July and we're still talking, you know, about the conference finals and, you know, free agency is going to be last year at this time. The season was starting back up. I know. I know. It's just, we're all out of whack and it's, it sucks that we have a short off season, but I am, I'm looking forward to getting back to a more normal schedule. That's just the world might make a little more sense at least. Uh, Yeah. He's been really good at his job. And uh, I think he did a good job during that period last year in, uh, in turning what looked like a hopeless situation into uh a team that ultimately failed in the second round of the playoffs, but still, but still had a pretty good season. Up until that point, yeah. If By you were, way, if you just like had an off button for middle of game four, it would have been a really successful season. By the way, there, there was a TMZ video of uh, of Doc. Doc. Did you see that? Uh, I, I saw a description of it. I didn't see the video. So he basically was. I don't know. He's walking into some store in Beverly Hills. By the way, that's got to be an annoying way to live where you you just have a guy with a camera screaming in your face from TMZ and, and all of these, uh, these other places. Uh, I mean, doc's probably not even getting it that bad. That Britney Spears documentary. I don't know if you want to watch that. It's It's terrible. It's pretty wild though. And disgusting. you obviously feel, you know, extremely bad for her. Just, it's an unnatural way to to live in sort of that fishbowl. But anyway, I'm making a lighter point on Doc walking into this store in in Beverly Hills had his mask on like the lanyard he would wear it like during the during the playoffs. Doc loves wearing that like a whistle at a summer camp. His his mask, it's on his back. He's walking down the street in LA and he's still wearing the mask that way. That was, that, that was your takeaway. Not what he said about Ben that Simmons, was, but about the mask. Oh, I don't care what he said about Ben. I mean, of course he was going to say it about Ben. He loves wearing his mask around his neck like that. He, he loves does. it. Yeah. Doc, um, come on the pod and uh, and explain that mask usage to us. Uh, all right. This one from Doc and Jay Cigar. True or false, the Elton-Brett GM combo did much more harm to the current Sixers situation than the Colangelos ever did. No, I would, I would disagree with that too. I would go, I would go false on that too. And here's why. So I don't think the Colangelo's made as many decisions that look outright terrible, but they have the runway. Well, that that's the thing. I think when we look at decisions, we look at like, let's say, let's say we look at a draft pick and we say, okay, they selected Markel. You couldn't take Tatum because then Boston doesn't do that trade. There weren't that many great players available outside of Markel. That was a sensible decision. And quite frankly, like I agree, Markel, we've spoken about this a million times. Markel had a ton of upside. Um, I obviously wasn't there, couldn't interview him, couldn't do the background work to find out, to do the due diligence, to see if whether or not you could predict this from happening. But I know Markel had a ton of talent. But the options in front of them aren't just Markel Fultz and De'Aaron Fox and Jonathan Isaac and all of those players. It's also every trade they could have made with that. Yep. It's every team that wanted to trade up into that draft, into that number three slot, slot or that number one slot. So when you start looking at all of these assets they inherited from Okafor and Noel to the number one pick in 2016, the number uh, three pick, which eventually became the number one pick in 2017, the upcoming unprotected Kings pick, the unprotected Lakers pick, all that all of these assets that they inherited Jeremy Grant to have not maximized really any of them and at this point you might even be able to argue Ben Simmons to have not maximized any of them has put a lot of uh put the Sixers behind the eight ball and look I think the moves that Brand made 
themselves, the actual moves, you could certainly make the case were as or more damaging. The overpay yep. of Tobias Harris. Tobias being the big one. Yep. Both in terms of the trade and the contract, not bringing Jimmy back. Very damaging, for sure. Jimmy, for sure. great trade, but you didn't finish it up. Right. But the Sixers had the assets to go in. And also, when you talk about Colangelo, you're talking about, you know, he had cap room for two max contracts. And he punted on that, and he, he delayed on that because he thought he was going to land that big fish, that LeBron or that Paul George. Now, granted, he wasn't there to make that sales pitch, but how many? what, what opportunity cost was there to delaying those contracts, too? What could they have signed in the previous offseason, or I think even two offseasons before that, that they elected not to because they wanted to pursue the big fish? So I think when you look at the flexibility and the trade value and the assets they had to work with, I think Colangelo squandering those assets was more damaging than Elton spending the limited assets he had remaining poorly. Completely agree. I mean, you just talked about in the previous question, Daryl Morey and looking at a front office that'll have a consistent vision over the next few years. And frankly, we'll have the opportunity to execute that vision for the next couple of years after years of, chaos and instability and all that stuff. And uh, I think when you look at the situation that Colangelo was handed, when he first took the job, and let's even, let's move it up two months, because I think he got the job officially April, end of the season. Move it up two months when they, they pick Ben Simmons. They have the number one pick. At that specific moment, which is like May, June, 2016, I don't think an executive has ever walked into a better situation in the NBA ever. When you also include the fact that Joel Embiid was about to get healthy and start playing basketball for you. Um, yeah. I, I don't think that'll ever be replicated. And it, it, look, it, I mean, a lot of it comes down to the Fultz decision, which I, again, I'm not here to, uh, to relitigate the process, say it was a failure. I, I'll relitigate it for one second. The process ended as soon as Sam Hickey got, Sure. Fired, but. I'll go before that. The process ended when Jerry Colangelo was hired yeah. because their first move they made after that, they traded two second round picks for Ish for a half season of Ish Smith. Those second round picks were both in the thirties. I believe you, the, the process is not about trading multiple second round picks for Ish Smith. That's for yeah. damn sure. Okay. So that's, that's as far as we're going on the relitigating. Um, the other thing I, I would say though, with, with faults is just that, you know, even if I don't blame Colangelo quite as much, because I, I don't know what were the behind the scenes clues that he could have taken. And, and maybe there were some, I think there is an indication there probably was, you know, some background work that could have been done to miss on that. I mean, it all comes down to that move. Once you make that move and you whiff on it, it, it just, you start to go behind the eight ball a little bit more. And to the point where brand, not to say that the move for Tobias Harris was a good one. Cause Frankly, it wasn't. Nope. Um, but they they also were working under more of a time crunch with those two max slots. And when Colangelo first started to make moves, he he had basically the the optionality to use a hinky word to do whatever the hell he wanted. Yep. And uh, and there even were, there were a lot of different scenarios that a lot of different ways that could have worked out better than it did. Even even the Butler trade, like part of the reason, like yeah, Butler was a great talent. Part of the reason you can get a talent like that for Covington and Charge is because it comes with some baggage and some uncertainty with the future. Um, but it's in part because you're in a compromised position. And I think Brand, while he didn't spend his assets, his, his remaining assets well, I think they're in a little bit of a compromised position because of years of just asset degradation and inaction. Um, this, uh, this does dovetail a little bit into another question from Mount Airy SL. Can we now say that trading bridges for Zaire Smith and a pick that would be used to overpay for that to overpay for Tobias and then foolishly max him out is the one series of post hinky moves that have most prevented the Sixers from winning a title. I mean, it's damaging. I, I don't want to say I it wasn't. I don't think we've ever sorted that. So I think when you look at this and I think maybe this confuses some people because I've, I've talked about various aspects of that series of events differently. I think you have to break that down almost into four separate things. Yeah. There's, the decision to trade 10 um, for 15 and the future Miami pick. I think that is a, a has pretty solid basis for being a good move. 
Then there's the evaluation of Bridges. There's the evaluation of Smith. There is the evaluation of Tobias. And then there's the contract for Tobias. So really that's five moves. So I think the overall the first one was good and the other behind, four were misses. Right. Yeah. And I think the overall theory behind 10 for 15 and a future pick was solid, especially when they were star hunting. I think that trade asset that they got back in that deal was used and, and a big part of the deal for the quote unquote star they eventually got. The problem is they didn't get a star. They got Tobias Harris. And also I think, you know, and go back, like I'm pretty sure in both of our big boards, we had Bridges ahead of Smith. Um, we thought he was a better prospect. I think probably didn't we did. evaluate Bridges as highly as we should have. And certainly I think Zaire, they valued too highly than they should have. So that has adjusted the overall pendulum of that series of events in the negative favor. But I think the, I think collecting a, a pick to go try to trade for a star was fine. They used it on the wrong star and then they overpaid him in the, in, in, in the trade and overpaid him in free agency. And also then bridges blew up. Yeah. So, it was a bad, so, ser- bad sequence of events for sure. But the trade aspect of it is my least problematic part or the, the 10 for 15 pick is my least problematic of all of them. I had, uh, I had Mikhail Bridges number eight. You had him number ten. Yeah, we we both we had him above Zager Smith, who we both had fifteen. Probably I actually I, I, that was one of my better drafts. Yeah, I don't, I don't, I don't really. Every draft I I've ever rated, I can go through and pick some where I feel confident, and others where it's like, oh my god, what the hell was I thinking? Um, this one, yeah. this one was okay. I had Trey. We had Trey Young a little too low. Yeah, Mobamba Mo a little too high, but uh, I, I I I always say I coming up I will miss the next Steph Curry because I'm always paranoid uh, that how could you ever be Steph Curry at that size? And it's a very tough skill set and archetype to uh, project. Very tough. That's a by the way that uh, we didn't know it at the time. That that was a nice draft. <laughs> yeah. Yep. Luca, Trey, for sure. Jaron Jackson. Mikhail, Miles, uh, Michael Porter, Jay. Aiton's been much better than I expected. Did I say Aiton yet? Yeah, he's, he's, I mean, he's been awesome in the playoffs. Uh, We're a little off topic, but. We're very off topic. But uh, I I do agree. The, when you look at the, the execution of those three moves and and really what the Sixers used that, uh, that asset for, it goes to show like you can make the right move, but if you're, evaluation isn't right. And especially when it's not right on three kind of linked transactions, then uh, it's going to blow up in your face. Yeah. But by the same token, I think we were pretty critical of the uh, Harris trade and certainly critical of the contract right when it happened. So that's not really revisionist. The only real change is that Bridges is better than expected and Zaire is out of league. So not perfect. Not perfect. Uh, All right. So I think that was the last one. I believe that's all I have. Any well, other? Uh, we, we we let him go with some 2018 just random draft talk, and yeah. uh, that's a good place yeah. to end it on. Even Colin Sexton ended up being, and I mean, my future Porter sixer, Jr. Colin Sexton. If could that, that's a separate podcast, Rich. We're not getting into that now. Not 50 <laughs> minutes into it. Shame on you. Shame on you. Uh, but yeah, it turned out to be a pretty good draft for sure. Uh, all right, so thank you, Rich, for jumping on. I'm not going to let you rope me into a trade podcast now, and uh, have a good one. See you, man. <laughs>